Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 to 22. The 41st talk in a series on the book of Hebrews was presented by Jack Crabtree on June 4, 2017 at Reformation Fellowship. The copyright for this recording is held by Jack Crabtree and is being made available to you by Gutenberg College. Gutenberg College is a non-profit organization and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. Contributions to Jack Crabtree may be made at www.soundinterp.wordpress.com. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. Handout number 15, Translation, Installment 2017, number 3, accompanies this talk. We're back in the book of Hebrews, smack dab in the middle of chapter 11, smack dab in the middle of the discussion of Abraham. And rather than take any time to review at this point, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to jump in and keep right, keep right on going. Um, just to orient you, however, chapter 11 is Paul going through a long list of, a relatively long list of figures out of the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, who have found acceptance by God because of their belief. And he's taking them one, one after another. Doesn't say a lot about them, but just sort of briefly mentions them and, and uh, uh, lays them out there, lifts them up as an example of someone who believed and because they believed, they found acceptance with God. Now, Abraham gets a lot of press time here. There are several, a half a do- not, not a half a dozen, but four or five instances in the life of Abraham. We've looked at several already, but we come now to the next one in paragraph 66. So it'd be chapter 11, verse 17, if you're looking at your regular Bible. Okay, let me, let me read the Hebrews part first. With regard to belief, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. Indeed, the one who had embraced the promises was willing to offer up that unique son. To him it had been said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. Since he reasoned that God is in fact able to raise him up from the dead, for this reason he received him back as a sort of parable. Okay, that's what Paul says. Let's, I'm gonna, it's not that long, so I'm going to read the section in Genesis. It's chapter 22, the section that he's referring to. It's 22, 1 through 19. Now, it came about after those things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to, the, to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. 
Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it will be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gates of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice." So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Okay, we're not going to look at that Genesis passage. There's a lot there that we could talk about and that we could think about. But that's the passage that Paul has in mind in in the part of Hebrews that we just looked at. What Paul points out is how ironic it is that God is asking Abraham, I mean, remember the story up to this point, Abraham and and Sarah have been unable to have a child, and yet God has come to Abraham and said, you are going to have a child, and from that child you are going to have descendants like the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore. The problem is you can't have descendants like the sand of the seashore and the stars in the sky if you don't start with one, and he didn't have one. But we we looked at last week, Paul talking about how Abraham believed that promise, and lo and behold, God uh, caused a miracle to occur. Sarah conceived in her old age and had a child, even though she had been barren her whole life, and Abraham was almost dead. Uh, nonetheless, they, she conceived, and they had Isaac, their son. Well, this is the Isaac, this is the son that God then comes to him and says, I want you to offer him up as a burnt offering. Well, Isaac is, has, is not married, is not old enough. He's still, he's still a youngish lad. Um, so there are no descendants like the sand of the sea and the stars of the sky coming from Isaac at this point in his life. So to off him is to put an end to the very thing that God promised he was going to do through this very individual, Isaac. So it's a bizarre thing for God to ask Abraham to do. And yet the text itself in Genesis says it was a test. 
that God was testing Abraham. So he, he says to Abraham, I want you to offer him up as a burnt offering. And lo and behold, Abraham does. Now, why does he do that? Presumably because he trusts God implicitly. Now, notice what Paul says. Genesis doesn't say this, but it, it, is, a, it is a very interesting and, um, I, I think, accurate extrapolation from the Genesis text. I'm going to read the Hebrews again. With regard to belief, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. Indeed, the one who had embraced the promises was willing to offer up that unique son. It it emphasizes he's a unique son. Genesis twice uses that language. It emphasizes the fact that he was a unique son because even though Abraham had other children, this was the son of the promise. This was the son through whom God was going to fulfill the promise that he had made to Abraham. Was willing to offer up that unique son the one to whom it had been said, I mean, to him, to Abraham, it had been said, in Isaac, your descendant shall be called. I think he's defining the uniqueness of Isaac there. To him, it had been said, in Isaac, your descendant shall be called. Since he reasoned, here's what Paul says Abraham had to be thinking. Since he reasoned that God is, in fact, able to raise him up from the dead. So Abraham is thinking, I don't know how you're going to do it, God, but you said that you're going to give me, you're going to make me a great nation through this child, Isaac. Now you're asking me to kill him. Uh, You wouldn't be asking me to kill him unless you wanted me to kill him. So I'm going to do that, but somehow I fully believe that you're still going to Uh, fulfill the promise that you made to me that through this individual Isaac I will become a great nation my my seed will become a great nation you promised it's going to happen I believe it so I'll, I'll just accept that the only logical thing that you could think would be for the way God would solve the problem would be once you've killed him God will raise him up from the dead again So he reasoned that if it takes raising him from the dead, then you're going to raise him from the dead. But but I I need to obey you. I need to trust you implicitly and do exactly what you tell me to do. And so he did, and as the Genesis account tells us, he passed the test. Earlier in Hebrews, remember, he made a big deal out of that passage because he says it's at that point that God swears. I swear by myself, I will not change my mind. No, that's, that's Psalm 110. He swore by himself, I will surely bless you, and, and repeats the same promise that he's already made to Genesis, but this time he's not just promising it, he's swearing that he's going to do it. And the, the intensified Uh, certainty that comes from him swearing that he's going to do it arises from the fact that Abraham has been tested. You do believe, Abraham. You are my child. You do belong to me. So on the basis of that, God can guarantee with certainty, I am going to do what I said I'm going to do. 
Okay. Let me comment first on the parable thing, and then then we'll look at the larger issue here. He he ends that section. For this reason, he's received him back as a sort of parable. Now, all all he means by that is, isn't it interesting that you have a situation where God took him right to the brink of killing Isaac and then says, wait, just kidding. Wait, stop, don't do it. He, but he takes him right up to the brink. Isaac was as good as dead. But then, being as good as dead, he gave Isaac back to him alive, he says. So... Um, there, there's not that much difference between letting him go through with it and actually killing him and then raising him from the dead and giving him back to Abraham. He, it's in a parabolic way, like a sort of parable, that's exactly what God did. He, he brought him to death and then gave him back. And if he had raised him from the dead, that's exactly what he, he would have done. So Abraham reasoned that that's what God's going to have to do, and in fact, that's essentially, virtually, what God did as a sort of parable. Now, here's the problem, and this this has been something that has bugged me for many, many years. When, When I compare and contrast Moses coming out of Egypt, and there came that time where God gets just really fed up, up to here with Israel, and he comes to Moses and he says, I, I'm not, I'm not going to get this all, all the details right, so forgive me, but I'm going by memory. But God gets all fed up with Israel and uh, he comes to Moses and he says, I'm, I'm going to kill them all. I'm going to wipe them out. And we'll just start over with you, Moses. So I'll, I, will, I will have you be the beginning of a new project that I will engage in, but this project of taking this people and making them my people and me being my, their God and taking them to the land and having them prosper, that I'm done with that. We're not going to do that. To, and Moses responds, um, I mean, it, it's almost humorous because Moses comes across as the wiser, more informed, more knowledgeable person here, but, but God, I mean, you you set out to do this thing, what's it going to look like to all the nations around when you back off of that and you give up and you don't do it? You're not going to look very good if you, if you don't follow through on this project that you've started and you keep your word and you keep your promises and you stay the course and do what you set out to do. You're just not going to look that good. I, I don't think that's a good idea. That is, I don't think it's a good idea to kill them all. And God says, oh, you're right. <laughs> yeah, you're right, Moses. Well, what, what's going on there? Obviously, God has no intention of wiping out Israel. Obviously, God is not changing his mind. This is the author of the script from before the beginning of time. He knows exactly what he's going to do. He knows exactly what his intentions are. So why this little uh, kind of charade that he enters into with Moses? the thing that makes the most sense to me is he's basically inviting Moses to believe. He's entering into this, um, what's the word for it? Um, It's kind of a little thought experiment. It's a a play-acting thing that he's doing with him. 
and he's in the, in the midst of that, he's inviting Moses to think and reason and understand what am I up to, what are my purposes, what am I committed to, and therefore what does that imply about what we should do here? And Moses gets it right. Um, and, and basically God honors Moses' understanding by, by basically agreeing with him. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, I can't do that. We shouldn't be doing that. It's not like Moses has instructed God. It's that God has invited understanding to be articulated by Moses. So it strengthens, deepens, clarifies Moses' own faith at that point in time. Well, I, I think arguably we could say in that encounter, God was testing the faith of Moses at that point. It was a test. And it was a test that Moses passed. We see his faith emerge and express itself in his encounter with God there. Well, the problem I've had is, why wouldn't that be the way to interpret what happened to Abraham? I mean, why, when you come to Abraham and say, Abraham, um, this unique son that I've given you through whom all the promises are going to be fulfilled, I want you to offer him up on the altar. Why wouldn't faith have said, yeah, right, funny joke, yeah, like you're really going to do that. <laughs> that? That would be ridiculous. That would be absurd, God. Surely you're not going to do that. Why would that not be the way to express your faith? But this time around, I recognize there's a significant difference, and I think it is a, um, the decisive difference between what God did with Moses and what God did with Abraham. In the case of Moses, God is suggesting to Moses what he, God, is going to do and invites Moses to talk him out of it. That's not what he's doing with Abraham. With Abraham, he commands him. He instructs him, here's what I'm requiring you to do, Abraham. So if Abraham were to come back at God and say, nah, that doesn't make any sense, that, that's really silly, that's really ridiculous, you shouldn't be doing that, it would be, it would be Abraham making an excuse or giving a reason why he's not going to obey Yahweh. Well, but that was the test. The test was, do you trust me implicitly, Abraham? Do you trust me to the point that you'll even do something so absurd as to offer up on the altar the one and only son that I have given you through whom I have told you all the promises are going to be fulfilled? Are you willing to do something that absurd? And the answer was, yes, he was. And both Genesis and Hebrews consider that having passed the test. Okay. The philosopher Kierkegaard takes a big, long look at, uh, at this account of Abraham. He decides that what God is asking Abraham to do is to engage in what he calls the tele- teleological suspension of the ethical. What he means by that is he's asking Abraham to forego the ethical in order to achieve another end, a different end 
and indeed a greater end. Now, that's often misunderstood, both in Kierkegaard and in the Genesis account. People often interpret Abraham as if God has asked him to do something immoral and something evil, and lo and behold, his faith is such that he's willing to do it. He has the courage to be immoral. He has the courage to be evil. I, I would argue that's a perverse understanding of what's going on in Genesis. It's also a perverse reading of Kierkegaard. That's, that's not what's happening here. It's never evil to do what God says to do. When, when Kierkegaard talks about suspending the ethical, he means the ethical, not the good. It's not the teleological suspension of the good. It's the teleological suspension of the ethical. And what, what Kierkegaard has in mind, I think, is that we human beings, we invent rules. We invent laws. We invent guidelines that, that help us in our effort to pursue the good. We pursue the good this way by following these rules or these laws or these ethical principles or whatever. But no ethical principles can ever fully, completely, and absolutely capture what the good requires. They never can. They can only be at best an approximation. We may always find ourselves in a situation, an incredibly rare and unusual situation, where what good requires is in conflict with what ethics requires, what the ethical does. So God is not asking Abraham to do anything evil. He's not, in other words, he's not asking him to murder his son. Why? Because the evil of murder is that I would presume to decide when you will, when you will end your life. I'm playing God. That's the evil of murder, is the fact that I would presume a divine prerogative. It's God's prerogative to decide when my life will end. And if I assume that prerogative, I'm playing God. Abraham's not playing God here. He's not presuming when Isaac's life should end. He doesn't want it to end. He's not presuming when it should end. God is instructing Abraham as God, as author of all of reality and the one with the prerogative to decide who will live when and who will die when, I'm telling you, off your kid. That's what I want you to do. That's not murder. He's simply obeying Yahweh, who has revealed himself to Abraham, has proven himself to Abraham, and has invited Abraham into a relationship with him. So, anytime someone justifies doing evil because faith sometimes demands that you just have the courage to do evil, that's perverse. And that's not at all what's happening here. I've just been reading um, the book that Andrew Robinson mentioned a couple of weeks ago, Under the Banner of Heaven, about uh, Mormon fundamentalism and, and some of the things that go on there. They have a story about a man named Dan Lafferty who killed a young mother and her child, 
her infant child because God told him to. There's no, there's no way that we can protect against evil people being evil people who are deluded and self-deceived and who believe they've heard the word of God when they haven't. There's no way that we can protect ourselves against that. But we shouldn't use that as a reason to think God, God could not and cannot do such a thing. I mean, not such a thing. I don't, that's not what's happening here. He's not murdering two people. He is offering up his son. They, they are qualitatively different. And I don't believe for a second that God would ever ask me, command me to murder anyone if it's really murder, right? But just because some people out there may say, God told me to do something, doesn't make it so. But can God tell me to do something? If he wants to, he can. And if it really is God, and he really is speaking, and he really is commanding me to do something, what is my moral obligation? What does righteousness and goodness require of me? To implicitly trust the creator and do as he says. Now, I, I know it's scary <laughs> to say that. It's incredibly scary to say that because it would give crazy, deluded people permission to do all kinds of awful things. But that's on them. And they will be held accountable. And God will hold them accountable. But the fact of the matter is, we must always obey God. Okay, let me pause there because you might have some comments or questions. To think, to understand that God could and probably would raise Isaac from the dead. I mean, there's there's nothing recorded. But was I, this? I, I think it's just sheer logic. He couldn't think of any other way that God is going to fulfill His promise, because the the promise was pretty specific and pretty narrow, and and kind of had him hemmed in. So he couldn't imagine any way that God could fulfill his promise without raising him from the dead. I think that's what Paul was reasoning, is, is how else could Abraham have been thinking about this? But you're right, there's nothing in the text at all you know, of Genesis that suggests that. I, I just wonder, um, I guess we have to speculate that through his, he would, he'd have to be so super convinced that God made life that he could make it again. Right. Even from something that was had been alive and is now dead. And, and, and remember, he has the memory of how miraculous Isaac's existence is to start with. Just. Hi, Jack. Hi. Are, you, are you done talking about the parable? Unless, well, you, unless you ask a question about it. Okay. Well, so um, I was just curious. You and I have talked about this before. Um, for people who are struggling with the concept of a dead Messiah. And if indeed that is one of the reasons in which uh, the author of Hebrews is, is writing to these folks, um, wouldn't it potentially be the case that um, this would be a place in a way in which the author could reaffirm for them uh, that in the plans and purposes of God... Um, 
that resurrection is important and it happens and um, here's this here's this the story of the Old Testament with respect to the sacrificing of the promise of God and um, the assumption that you know lots of first century Jews had about what was going to happen in their Messiah and then he gets sacrificed and all that so anyway um, so could it be potential that He's saying more here, sort of implicitly, or or not so much. Well, I uh, so, let me let me see if I'm. So, is the parable the fact that Jesus, uh, Isaac almost dying and being given back to him is that a parable of Jesus' death and resurrection, that that of his raising from the dead after he's crucified, or we know him as Jesus, whoever the whoever the Messiah might be? Is that is that the something more that? Yeah. Um, for example, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I, I don't think so. And the reason I don't think so is because that's not what the paragraph is talking about. Um, now, could, could he have created a parable out of that and made that point? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, it, it's, uh, it's very striking. Um, it's a very striking piece of history that you could invest a lot of significance in and a lot of meaning in. So I think he could have in another context where that was the issue. But I think the issue here is Abraham's faith. And the, the problem for Abraham is not a crucified Messiah. The problem for Abraham is a promise that is narrowly funneled through one particular individual that God has asked him to kill. So I, I think the parable is, and it says literally, for this reason, he, that is Abraham, received him back as a parable. So it's not a parable for us. I don't, Paul is not saying, and this is a parable for us. He's saying Abraham received him back as a parable. Now, and unless he's saying he received him back and that is a parable for us. I guess you could read it that way. But the way I'm reading it is he received him back, if you can dig it, like a parable of the very resurrection that he was expecting. That, that's how I'm reading it. And that, that for me, that fits the context better because this is a person-by-person, you know, person, event-by-event where the focus is very narrowly and intensely focused on their their belief, the particular manifestation of their own individual personal belief. Yeah, no, that I, that makes sense. I mean, certainly all of these little moments are intended to very much be parabolic for the readers. Um, but I, I, yep, I, I hear you. Okay, so so nothing. Nothing more than monogamous and all. Okay. Can, can I just follow up with uh, Ryan's question? I mean, the fact that um, the author goes out of the way to say that um, that Abraham could could um, consider that God was able to raise people from the dead. I mean, be making making the additional point and not only talking about Abraham's faith, but to say to these people who were, who, who 
are trying to come to terms with a dead Messiah that our father Abraham believed God could raise people from the dead. And, and um, that that, that I mean, there there's, isn't anything in the Old Testament, but Paul's going out of his way to, to say that maybe that's, you know, that's the reason why Abraham um, was willing to do, you know, or what Abraham must have been reasoning. And then I have to, I mean, the fact that um, Abraham, I mean, at least in the New American Standard, says that he was offering up his, his monogamous son, his only begotten son. I mean, the parallels there are just with what Abraham was doing and what um, God did with Jesus are very striking. That, that it seems like there needs to be, that Paul is referring to those things for a purpose. That's my question, or that's my comment. I don't know, I guess it's a question too. Okay. Well, several things. We, we, have to, we have to be really careful that we, either only begotten in English or monogonese in Greek, which is the word that is translated that, is so unusual and so striking to us that any time you see it happen, it, your mind immediately goes to, well, that's who Jesus is. He's the monogonese son of God, right? So our, like a magnet, like an intellectual magnet, my mind is just slammed against that. The problem is, is that a function of what the author is intending, or is that a function of me being a 21st century English-speaking American who doesn't talk about monogamous very much? You see, what, you see what I'm saying? Because if you do a word study of monogamous, you have, I mean, it doesn't occur that many times, but it occurs about a widow who had a monogamous child who was raised from the dead, uh, another person who had a monogamous child, are we to take each of those places where there's a monogamous child as somehow a analogy, a parable with Jesus? I, I don't think so. It just means it's their only kid. That's what it means. And in this case, he defines it. It's not his only kid, but it's the only kid that God uh, had specified the promises would come through. That's what made him monogamous. I mean, he wasn't his only child. That's what Ishmael was as well. So we have to be careful that, that verbal, that things that are somehow verbally striking don't, don't make us lose sight of the fact that just because it's verbally striking to me doesn't mean the author intended this striking parallel with, with something else. Right. Um, Can I just so, say, but sure. the fact that when an author does speak and he uses certain details when he could have used other details, that says something about what the author intended to say. Yeah, but twice Genesis describes Isaac that way in the Genesis account. So it's not exactly, it's not exactly unexpected that, that in describing the account, uh, Paul would describe Isaac as the monogamous, does he use the word son or child? Son. That, that he would describe as the monogamous son because that's, the, that's a, made a big deal in Genesis. And the, the Abraham considering that God could raise people from the dead as to why Paul would include that? So say that well, again? Well, the detail of Paul including that Abraham considered God was able to raise 
someone from the dead, you don't think that has any reference to Jesus and the Messiah and the fact that God did raise him from the dead. I, I don't. We're going to see as we go on through here, all these guys think that God is able to raise them from the dead. They're expecting it. They're counting on it. Joseph, Isaac, that's a big deal to them. I mean, Joseph, one of the examples he's going to give is Joseph, before he died, said, take my bones to the land of Canaan. Why? Well, I'm going to argue because when the resurrection happens, he wants to be in the land that God promised because that's when it's all going to happen. That's when it's all going to go down. So he, Joseph is, that very act on Joseph's part, among other things, implies his belief that he's going to be raised from the dead one day. Remember the account in John, what is it? But where, is it Martha or is it Mary that's talking to Jesus? And Jesus starts going on about the resurrection that Lazarus is going to be raised from the dead. And she says, well, yeah, yeah, I know that. I mean, everybody's going to be raised from the dead, of course. Yeah, sure. But he's dead now. Uh, It was commonplace in that time for them to believe in a general resurrection from the dead one day. So there's more. Jesus' resurrection is not the only resurrection. So just because we have resurrection being talked about is not necessarily a connection with Jesus. And in this case, I think it isn't, isn't Abraham focused on Isaac, not the Messiah? Abraham? Yeah, Abraham is focused on Isaac. Right. And isn't that what Paul's talking about? His faith that God is quite able to, if, if need be, raise Isaac from the dead so that God's promise can be kept through Isaac. And it seems to me that's clearly his focus here. Right. But it's one thing to say that Abraham's focus on Isaac. It's another one. It's another thing to say if Paul's focus about telling us about Abraham's experience, I mean, that he could be telling us about Abraham's experience, and Abraham was focused on Isaac, but he could be telling us his experience because he's saying something else to his audience. I mean, he's... He's giving implications to his audience that they wouldn't necessarily have otherwise. Okay, but, but if, if Paul is relying upon association to make a point and not the logic of an argument, there is no limit to what he might be doing, right? For me, my, my philosophy of interpretation, my philosophy of... Uh, um, understanding this stuff is that we have to follow the argument and the argument is Abraham like all these other men found acceptance in the eyes of God because of his belief and he's giving examples of the belief that that Abraham manifested throughout his life and in this particular case he manifested this particular kind of belief with this particular content in this particular substance. That's what he's communicating. I know that from the whole structure of Romans 11 and what he explicitly tells me here. The fact that, that he may use language along the way, resurrection, monogonase, and so on, that I can find connections with other things, that's irrelevant to me. 
yeah, I could, I could see connections with those other things. But to think that Paul wants me through simply verbal association or conceptual association to see another point that is not related to the argument, is, is related to some other argument, that doesn't make any sense to me. Why, why would he do that? And, and if he were doing that, how would I be expected to follow him? Because I'm, I'm only going to know what he's telling me by the structure and logic and flow of the argument that he's actually making. So I, I just think we have to be really cautious. If, if not, we risk... I, I, think it's very, I think it's critical that we are rigorous in demanding the sticking to the argument of the, the structure of the discourse and the argument of the discourse. It's really important that we do that. Otherwise, if we make it too loose, we risk sending the message to everyone else who's watching us that you guys are just making this up. This is just your fertile imaginations going wild and you're just you're looking at the text and then going here, hither and thither and far afield and you're just making this stuff up. The Bible doesn't mean anything. The Bible is just whatever you make of it. I mean, how often do you hear that? <laughs> that that's the charge that's leveled at us all the time by our culture is that it, you can make it mean whatever you want it to mean. Well, unfortunately we do too much to reinforce that, perspe- that perception of us. And I think that's why we have to be really, really rigorous, disciplined to not allow myself to make connections that are just connections because they're connections. They don't contribute to the argument that the author is actually making. They're just a connection. And it is a connection. There's, that's, not, that's true. There's no question about that. It is a connection. But is it relevant to what the author intended to argue and, and to say? That, for me, that's the critical question. Yeah, I don't know, Jack. I'm with Robbie on this one. Okay. And, and only because um, thinking what you were talking about, I get the logic of the faith argument. But what about the logic of the overarching message of Hebrews that these are my fellow Jews, my fellow Israelites that, that are getting shaken to their core uh, on, their, on their faith, which is this, this logic of this argument you're talking about? So it's not necessarily that we're going hither and yon in association. Is it if the message of this book... And one of his main concerns is that these are Jews that are losing it. And they're losing it because their Messiah is a dead Messiah or one that that we're going to need to believe was raised from the dead. And so just tell me I'm right. (laughs) Yeah, you're right. Okay. Thanks. Okay. That's what I was looking for. why, Why are you not right? The reason you're not right is because the paragraph never says that. Well, I, uh, that's a, does it? Um, the resurrection is not an issue in the book of Hebrews. But what is the reason of the letter for tying Jesus to being relevant to the Israelites and how this, this is connecting God? If your Messiah is not 
your Messiah is not a, a fable. Well, I think it's more narrow than that. It's that the issue is, is it a problem that the Messiah died? And, I mean, you would think somewhere along the line, Paul might have made the argument, yeah, but he lived again. (laughs) But he doesn't. Because that's not his purpose in Hebrews. His purpose is to actually establish the, the prior point it's actually not a problem that he died, let alone whether he's still dead or lived again. The fact that he died at all is not a problem. It was absolutely essential to God's purposes because here's the role it played. Here's, uh, here's how it functioned. He was our high priest offering up himself as a propitiatory offering, and we absolutely needed that for mercy. And so that's why he died. And that, that's where he goes. He stops there. He doesn't do anything more with it. Now, I guess you could argue, well, okay, so here he's talking about the resurrection. But if this is a big deal, aren't you going to have to do more than just kind of hint at it? Wouldn't you like at least end the paragraph by saying, wink, wink, get it? Jesus raised from the dead somehow. Draw some kind of comparison, some kind of analogy, some kind of connection that you, the author, are making. If that's his point, then make it. See, that if, if I'm saying that to Paul. If that's Paul's point, then Paul, make it. Don't, don't simply ever so slightly hint at it through associations and connections that someone might make. Tell me what the point is. And I don't have any problem. I think I see what his point is. So I don't, I'm, not, I'm not missing a point in this paragraph, I know what the point is, so I don't need to be looking for another. So you don't think that this illustration of resurrection is a, is a foundation for his audience to strengthen their weak faith? Well, I, Isn't that part of the point of the book of Hebrews, is that the Hebrews were getting a little, they were getting a little hinky on... Hanging in there? there were, yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, and, and we're going to see clearly as we come out of 11 into 12, that's, it, that's exactly the point he makes. Uh, strengthen your wobbly knees and keep your feet straight and keep walking down this path. I mean, there's no question about that. But, um, but the resurrection is not the problem to them. It's okay. the crucifixion. In fact... I would argue, I think in all likelihood, they started off believing in Jesus because they believed in his resurrection. Now, I don't, I don't, we don't have any explicit evidence of that in the book, but that would make sense to me. The, but the problem they had is, okay, he raised from the dead, he must be the Messiah, like you say he is. Okay, I'll believe in him. They get beat up, thrown in prison, persecuted, killed, all kinds of mean, nasty things happen to them. And then they go, you know... I I never did understand why he died. I'm thinking maybe he wasn't the Messiah. And all this stuff about the resurrection, maybe that didn't actually even happen. And they're rethinking that. But um, it's not going to do them any good at this point to persuade them of the resurrection when they can't get past the crucifixion. Dr. Crabtree, you're a formidable opponent. 
one thing we can be pretty thankful for is that all this happened a long time ago because I'm telling you, Abraham would have been in a lot of trouble if he would have done that to Isaac today. <laughs> That's for sure. And uh, there's no telling how long Isaac would have been in counseling <laughs> afterwards you know, and what damage that may have done. You know. That's true. But on a more serious note, I would say that um, when there are two pieces that strike me. Before, I used to think that in the Genesis account that, that really Abraham was just trying to keep everybody you know, calm as he moved Isaac up to the altar there. But, um, but he, does, he does say two things that, I, that strike me as being rather in line with what Paul then later points out as being the, the logic that, that uh, he felt that there was going to be, that God would resurrect uh, Isaac, if it came to that, uh, because he says two, there are two things that he says. One, he says to, to uh, Isaac, you know, God will provide, provide the lamb, okay? And I used to think, well, that was just sort of to put Isaac at ease, you know, because we've got a little ways to go up here, and he's carrying the wood. And the, but the second part of it that I think is, is uh, I'm more, more convinced today that that seems more like, no, that's really what he thought. He thought, oh, yeah. Yeah, God's going to provide the lamb, you know, whether that's you, Isaac, and, you know, whatever happens after that. And, but the second thing is, is that he tells the, the other uh, the servants, you stay there, we're going up making the sacrifice, and we'll be back, hmm. you know. And now, that's, that's certainty, it seems to me, that, hmm. that he expects that they're both coming back. He doesn't say, yeah, and uh, uh, I'll be back unless, or, you know, I used to think, well, he's just putting them at ease because they were thinking maybe the same thing Isaac was thinking. There isn't any... There's no lamb here. But I think now, I think maybe that was, he, he, no, he didn't know how it was going to work out. It was a mystery to him, but he believed that it would. You know, I don't think he went into it with any doubt on that. And so, that's all. Okay. Thank you. Before I start, I'm going to apologize. I wouldn't be talking, except I don't get many chances anymore because we're moving away. Um, a oh. couple of things. One, um, Growing up, I never had this particular verse in Hebrews tied to the story of the Old Testament when the story was told me. And I go, what, you know, at that time I'm going, what could Abraham have been thinking? And it's just like, the only thing I could come up with is that if God tells me to do something stupid, I'll go do something stupid because God told me to. Now, it could be that he was thinking, if I didn't have any hints from Paul, he could have been thinking something like, if God is taking away the promise from me, I'm okay with it. And if that's just the way it is, that's the way it is. You know, there, there are a number of different places his head could have been going. This is the only place I've seen where it gives this as an explanation of him going that direction in his thinking, um, which would indicate to me God intended Paul to give us that hint um, and that's probably the direction he was thinking. And when you were talking about comparing what Abraham did to what Moses did, Moses was fed up with them also. He was fed up with all the... And God said, you know what? I can just get rid of all of those and just you and me go do this. Yeah. And Moses could have said... Sounds good to me. <laughs> then you keeping your, you're still keeping your promise, and I don't have to deal with this. But no, he goes, no, I'm sticking up for him. 
you know, I'm sticking up for these people that I'm just as annoyed with as you are. So it, it was him. It made Moses double down on his commitment mm-hmm. to be a leader of the people. Yeah. So yeah. it could have been fulfilling a number of different types of functions that could be a really interesting study sometime. Yeah, yeah. No, that's good. Thanks. Okay. Should we go on one more? Actually, maybe we can get three more in here. With regard, this is very brief, the next one. With regard to belief, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. Okay, now, why, why does it say even regarding things to come? Because Isaac is about to die. And so I think what he's, what he's trying to underline and dramatize is the fact that uh, what Isaac believed, he believed for the future, a future that he was not going to be a, uh, a, a part of, potentially. I mean, he was not going to be alive when the fulfillment came, let me put it that way. So with regard to belief, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. Now, Paul, so what, what's Paul's point? Paul's point is God had promised Abraham a land, a mighty nation, a nation for, where God would be their God and they would be his people, and he promised them a certain quality of life in that land, prosperity, peace, and so on and so forth. It's a, it's a promise. On the one hand, it's several promises, but on the other hand, they're all inextricably bound, bound together, so Paul at some points just calls it a promise, singular. But it has many, many dimensions to it and elements to it. Isaac believed that promise. Now, I, I won't take the time here because we're running out of time, but if we were to go back to the Genesis account, um, Isaac has been promised exactly those same things that Abraham was promised. Those, that promise was passed down to Isaac. So the promise that God gave Abraham, Isaac, I'm giving all that stuff to you. All this stuff that was going to be true for Abraham is going to be true for you. Now he's going to pass that down to his son. Isaac thinks that he ought to, by custom and tradition, pass it down to Esau. Uh, But lo and behold, God has other plans, and through deceit, trickery, the magic of goatskin, and all kinds of things, he manages to pass it down to uh, Jacob instead. Uh, But that's not of concern to Paul here. What's of concern to Paul here is the fact that he would pass it down to anybody. Why would you pass it down to somebody if it's worthless? If you don't believe it, if you don't think it's true, if you don't think it's going to come to pass. So the fact that on his deathbed, he wants to pass this blessing and this promise down to uh, his offspring is an indication that he had faith, that is, he believed in that promise, and he accepted that promise from God. The next one, 68, this is 1121. With regard to belief, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, and he bowed down in humble gratitude to God over the extent of his branch of the family. Now, that's a very different translation than most of your English translations. Uh, back when I first began my, my life as a serious Bible student, I was under the impression that this was the most bizarre passage in the entire Bible. Because the way your 
your English translations have it, is uh, with regard to belief, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, and he worshipped God either on his staff or on his bed. Yeah, anyone have some English translations out there? Bed? Staff. Okay. Okay, there, there's two different problems. The translations that have bed, which is what the old Genesis reads, is it reads bed. There, it, it's very simply a matter of a feature of the Hebrew language. Hebrew has no vowels originally uh, in, in its written language. They, they speak vowels. <laughs> but its written language has no vowels. And so this word here is just, in English, it would be M-T-H. It's mem uh, tate he in, in Hebrew. It just has these three consonants. Uh, the original text does not indicate what the vowels are. So, when you're reading it from context, you have to decide which word it is in order to supply the appropriate vowels for that particular word. Well, what if you get that wrong? What if you supply different vowels than the vowels that were intended? Well, the, the, those consonants, M-T-H, with one set of vowels, it means a branch, and they get staff somehow from that, that they've decided that it's a branch taken off a tree and being used as a staff, and so they've decided to translate it that way. Uh, and partly they're going on the Greek, which translates it with a word that means a branch but could mean staff. The Old Testament, if you go to the Genesis account, it's going to say bed because in, in my Bible on my shelf, it's called the Masoretic text, the Masoretes have added vowels, but when they added vowels, they added the vowels for bed, not for branch or staff. You following me? So I would argue they got the wrong vowels. Now, don't ask, don't ask me why. I, I don't know why, but I think they got the wrong vowels there. The, the Greek translation of the Genesis account uses the same word that Paul uses here, which can mean either a branch or a stem or, a, or it can mean a staff in certain contexts. Uh, the same word that's used in, by Paul here is used in other prophets where I'm convinced that what it means is your tribe. In fact, if you look in a lexicon for the, uh, the Greek of the Septuagint, that's one of the options they'll give, a, basically a tribe, that this word means a tribe. That's the sense in which Paul, it, it means it in Genesis, and that's what Paul means here. What, what he's, worship, he's worshiping uh, on the basis of or in response to the extent of his tribe. Because if you go back in the Genesis account, what, what's going on? Remember, Joseph was in Egypt. Jacob, to escape famine, is invited by Joseph down into Egypt, and they come to Egypt. He's meeting up with Joseph for the first time after a number of years. Um, and now, years later, on his deathbed, he is... Um, he, he's thinking about how many children he has and 
that promise that God made to Abraham, uh, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make you a great nation. And lo and behold, he has actually seen evidence that God is going to be doing that because he's managed to produce a pretty big tribe, a pretty big branch of the family. His branch of the family is pretty extensive. So I, I think that's what he's doing, is he's worshiping God. Well, why is he worshiping God? I think it's out of gratitude at this point. He's being grateful to God at the extent of the tribe that has, has been given to him in fulfillment of the promise that was made to Abraham. Now, that's in connection with him blessing Joseph's sons. Well, if we were to go and look at the blessing that he gives to Joseph's sons, our Manasseh and Ephraim, if we look at the, pro, uh, the blessing that he gives to Manasseh and Ephraim, mostly what the blessing consists of is how prolific each of them is going to be. In fact, with respect to Ephraim, he says, man, you are going to be so prolific that you're going to become a... Um, what, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, it, uh, it's going to become a proverb. Uh, may, you be, may, be, may you be as prolific as Ephraim, that, that kind of thing. You, you're going to become a household word as you will stand for having a lot of kids and being, being very prolific. So the emphasis in blessing the sons of Joseph is uh, Jacob is anticipating that God is going to continue to multiply the children of Abraham, the children of Jacob. His branch of the family is going to continue to multiply and become great. And for some reason, particularly, he thinks that's going to happen with Ephraim and Manasseh, the, the sons of Joseph. Um, so what, what's the point here? Why is that here in chapter 11 of Hebrews? Well, why would he be saying that except that he believes the promise that God made to Abraham, got passed down to Isaac, got passed down to Jacob himself, Jacob, I'm going to make you a great nation and I'm going to take you and give you this land and give you prosperity in the land and you, your descendants, you will be my people and I will be your God. He believes that promise. And here it's focused on primarily the great nation part of that, of that promise. Okay, and then finally, and I've, I basically already mentioned this, with regard to belief, Joseph, when he was reaching his end, coming to his death, made reference to the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. He instructed them, we could go back to the Genesis account, he instructs them, take my bones back to Canaan with you. Back to Canaan with us? (laughs) They're still in slavery, they're they're about to go into slavery in, in Egypt. But Joseph is still thinking, we're not gonna stay here in Egypt because God promised us a land. And because God promised us a land, that's where we're going to end up. And when we end up, and when you end up going back there, because that's where you're going to end up, take my bones with you. Because when the day comes that God is going to give the land to you, and I'm going to be raised from the dead to see it, I want to be right there. 
I want to be in the land where it's all going to happen. So again, he believes the promise that, that God made. Okay, we only have about five minutes, but any questions or comments on any of that? Okay, I'll go and sin no more. <laughs>